Hi, this is Bill. This episode of Open Out, called Rebooting, was written and produced before we felt the full impact of the COVID pandemic. Before so much of the world decided to engage in a global corporate reboot, turning off almost all of our systems at once, only to, at some point in the future, start them again. This is Episode 2 of the Considering Series, Reboot. Hi, welcome to Open Out, a podcast series about the nitty-gritty of living interculturally, about creating new pathways inside our own minds and our faith communities so that we can intentionally open outwards, open to welcome those who not only look and sound different, but also think and act in ways we might not expect. My name is Bill Miller, and these podcasts grew out of a grant from the United Church Foundation in Canada. Before this, I was for 14 years pastor of Knox United in Winnipeg, a church that during that period of time morphed into one of the most intercultural and diverse faith communities in North America. Part of the research was trying to find out why it worked at Knox when it so often doesn't, trying to gain insights from its unlikely and wondrous journey into interculturalism that can help other communities who are interested in going a similar route. This is the second in our series called Considering. If you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know that we've been trying to explore how we can help our minds open out to welcome greater diversity. We began simply by being curious about what this looks like and have now moved to starting to seriously consider this as an option. Along the way, we've imagined what are the possibilities for faith communities who want to open themselves and truly welcome those who are different. Then we looked at reasons why faith communities might want to become more open and welcoming. One of the reasons we discovered is that Canada itself is increasingly becoming more diverse. It is changing in real time growing through immigration ever since the Canadian birth rate dropped. In sync with this, the mainline churches have been changing too, but for the most part they have been steadily shrinking since the Canadian birth rate dropped. Where the country has openly welcomed non-white, non-European immigrants, the churches have, for the most part, not followed suit. We've also seen that becoming truly intercultural involves more than just increasing the diversity in our community that it involves not just an external opening, but an internal opening as well, creating access to the central life, the very heart of our faith communities. And we've seen that the process of truly opening to others who are different than us has the power to change us, to change how we think and feel, change our beliefs and values. And those changes might indeed be the very thing we need. All well and good, but how do we actually do this? What do we need to do? It's our brains that we need to help. And that's what this episode is all about, rebooting our brain. In case you are somehow even more computer-challenged than I am, and I am pretty far down that continuum, rebooting is that thing we do to our computers when they get all mixed up, when they get overwhelmed and they freeze with just that annoying little wheel going around and around and around. We turn our computers off, and then we turn them on again. And some kind of magic occurs. 
Whatever happens inside the eerie workings of the computer's brain, suddenly it can think with clarity, with enthusiasm, with speed. This happens to our minds as well. They can suddenly switch, suddenly get it. This is really two processes with the same name pronounced differently. Recognition and recognition. Our brain seeks patterns that it recognizes and understands. If it can't recognize the pattern, then the reasoning part of our brain, that thinking part, can't get active. Let me give you an audio example. A series of clips of music, all taken from Christian worship services, from different cultural contexts. See how you respond to each, what you feel and what you think. I am guessing that as you listen to these, you probably had some kind of emotional response. Oh, I, I can't stand that one. Well, I don't mind that one. The closer it was to something familiar, you, your brain might have been able to respond more actively, more positively. But I want to focus on the first clip. And the last clip. Both of these are Appalachian, or as they would say, Appalachian hymn singing. Many years ago, oh man, frighteningly close to 50 years ago, I worked in Appalachia, halfway between Mud Creek Holler and Hoodal Holler, and every Sunday at six in the morning, all of the folk from another holler, like a village, would gather around a single mic at a local radio station, and they would sing hymns just like that. I listened every week, Oh, it was so painful. I felt like my head was going to explode. But I kept on listening because I wanted to understand the culture better. And then, one Sunday, you know, it was like when your ears clear after you've been on a plane. Suddenly, it wasn't awful at all. It was beautiful. I, 
couldn't explain what happened. I wasn't trying. It just happened. My brain suddenly got it. Something similar happened many years later when I was working at a mission in Winnipeg's North End. I didn't have any Sunday services, so I would often visit what was then called Native United Church. They were great people, but they would sing these old gospel hymns so slow. A three-minute hymn would take like seven minutes. I absolutely hated it. And then suddenly, one Sunday, I loved it. On its own, without me asking it to, my brain had changed. Suddenly, I could hear the beauty in it. Musical ethnographers, the people who study this kind of stuff, understand this process. They say it occurs in steps. First is the encounter. When we encounter music that is different, might be in a different cultural setting or, or just music from a different cultural group, our brains can't recognize the patterns. And so it sounds dissonant to us. It, it, we have difficulty listening to it. it. It can feel unpleasant, disorienting even. This leads to what they call stasis. That's a great word meaning standing still, suspended, when the brain just kind of stops. You're in between, sort of waiting. This can be a time of passive listening, listening without processing, but also maybe without judging. This then leads to a third stage, discovery, or cognitive reorientation, when your brain suddenly gets it. And this in turn is followed by engagement, an openness, a new curiosity, Now you can engage in participatory listening. Your brain can recognize the pattern. And so there is a new recognition, a new understanding, new thinking. And then this, in turn, can be followed by fusion and improvisation. I think this process is basically what we need to do in order to achieve cultural openness. Fortunately, there are a number of things that we can do to help this happen, help our brains change. Later on in Episodes 8 and 9, we'll look at unconscious bias. Bias is a part of all human thinking, but we can change unhelpful biases. But for today, let's look at this first area where we can help our brains. By looking at privilege. White privilege is a term that's been tossed around quite a bit over the last few years, and with good reason. It describes something very real, and yet the term has a few problems. It points to a strong truth an observable reality in North America, and in many ways around the world. White people do have privilege. The problem arises when we think there is something about being white and having privilege that are intrinsically connected, rather than contextually. What this means is that the context, where it's happening, is important. There are, of course, many levels of privilege, and and there are many white people who do not have privilege. The deaf, for example those with mental or physical disabilities, the imprisoned. For the deaf, and I know this, I worked for many years as a pastor of a deaf church, for the deaf, it's hearing people who have privilege. For the imprisoned, it's those on the outside. Privilege only exists as a comparison. I can only have it if you do not. You can only have it if I don't. If we're all equal, then there is no privilege. Privilege accompanies being part of whatever group is at the top of whatever the social or economic configuration is. So, for example, being white in China might not bring privilege. In India, being Brahmin might bring privilege. Being untouchable is the opposite. Privilege is almost entirely an accident of birth. If you have it, you didn't earn it. You just inherited it. But fluke or not, if we have it, 
then we're responsible for what we do with it, for trying to deal with it in a mature, socially and spiritually responsible way. Use it for the greater good, the common good, rather than for personal advantage. It's similar to entitlement, but entitlement's a little bit different because entitlement is self-aware, more intentional. I claim my entitlement. I might be blissfully unaware of my privilege. Both of these are present in faith communities. If you visit a church, sit yourself down all nice and comfy, and then someone comes over to you and says, you're sitting in my pew, that's entitlement. When the regional youth group organizes a conference for all the youth around, but the registration requires having a credit card, that's privilege hiding in the assumptions. I'm guessing that entitlement operates a bit differently in different streams of the faith. For example, maybe tongue speakers have it in the Pentecostal churches, and maybe major tithers have it in the evangelical communities. There's probably differences, but there is some stuff in common. And so traditionally, church entitlement might be expressed through a series of beliefs like... One, believing that I should know and like all the hymns we sing. Two, believing that everyone in the church should dress in ways I consider appropriate, which, curiously, is quite similar to how I dress. Three, believing that I have a particular place to sit in the church that is mine. Four, believing that children in the church ought to behave the way I want children to behave, more or less the way my children behaved. Five, believing that I have a right to feel comfortable in church and that nothing and or no one should cause me discomfort. Six, believing that the minister or pastor should dress more or less the way I think a minister or pastor should dress. Seven, that if I like exchanging the peace or the kiss of peace, then we should do it in church. And if I don't like it, we shouldn't. It's quite simple, really. Eight, that there is a right way to run church meetings, and, curiously, I happen to know what that way is. 9. That my opinion in a church meeting or discussion should have more weight than someone who just recently started attending. And number 10. That it is rude, of course, for people to speak or get up during the organ recessional. They should sit respectfully just the way I do. Well, when these are isolated and out of context like this, we can, we can likely see the inherent arrogance in them. But in operation, they, they seem a bit more subtle. So how do we deal with entitlement? Well, first, the only entitlement that you can deal with is yours. I know, it's so tempting. It's so clear that somebody else over there, well, that person certainly is acting a lot more entitled than me. But you can't change him or her. The only one you can change is you. Because entitlement is either conscious or, or, or nearly conscious, it exists in that slow, plodding, reason part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. And that means that reason, self-talk, can help us. Plus, since usually it is self-appointed, well, it can also be self-abandoned. A simple way of doing this might be when we feel that annoyance, and you see, annoyance is often a clue that entitlement is getting active. Simply ask yourself, is this about a sense of entitlement? 
What's behind this? Is it contributing to the common good, or am I simply trying to ease my own discomfort? It's simple, but it actually can work remarkably well if we're open to it. But where we can, usually, control our sense of entitlement, privilege is different. With consistency and practice, you might well succeed in ridding yourself of entitlement, but you can't rid yourself of privilege. Privilege is, period, full stop. It operates whether we are aware of it or not. The question is, what do you do with your privilege? Some of you might remember the biblical story about Queen Esther. Queen Esther was a Jew, quite beautiful. She was also the wife of a Persian king. She had privilege galore, but her people did not. And she had this uncle, Mordecai. And as the story progresses, Uncle Mordecai suggests to her that she use her position to help her people. And then he says, who knows? Perhaps you have come into this position for such a time as this. And she did. It's all about how you use the privilege you have. This whole matter of privilege was pretty personal and close for me at Knox. When I started there, I was working with a brilliant pastor, a guy named David Murata, a major figure in the Japanese-Canadian community, quite involved in the apology and the redress. He had a deep passion for social change, transformation. When I was called to Knox, when they hired me, but before I arrived, he told the board, he said, Reverend Miller will be able to do more in the community than I have been able to do, because he is white, and he grew up in Winnipeg. He has the connections. Hearing about this a bit later, it was actually painful. I I didn't want it to be true. Yet in my heart, I knew it was. He was right. Then, at the end of the end of my time at Knox, years later as I was leaving, my colleague Damber from Nepal, in one of our last conversations, asked me, Rev, what did you do with your privilege as a white male working in this intercultural, diverse community here at Knox? He, he, he caught me off guard. I was almost taken aback for a moment at the directness and the clarity of his question. And I thought for a moment, and then I answered, I used it for the good of the community. I never apologized for it. I never tried to deny it. Nor did I feel any degree of entitlement with it. I just figured it might be one of the things that God could use to make good things happen in Central Park, in this downtown community. Privilege is. It's what you do with it that matters. Church privilege primarily operates within the church itself. It shares some characteristics with other forms of privilege, but it also has its own unique expression and pattern. Now, if you're involved in a faith community, you might be wondering, do I have church privilege? I'm so glad you asked. I do happen to have a wee tool that is really just a teaching aid, a kind of questionnaire. It's available for download at openout.ca. But for ease, I will read it here. Now, for each of the statements as I read them, you say either yeah or true if the statement is always or most often true for you. If it is never or seldom true for you, you can say false or no. But we'll just count the yeses, the trues. So as I read through, if you happen to have a piece of paper and a pen, you can make a mark for each true. Or if you don't have a paper and pen with you, you can just count them on your fingers. Well, maybe not if you're driving, but... Some of these deal directly with church situations and others are a bit more general. One, people seldom ask me where I'm from. No, I mean really, where are you from? 
too. And if they did, I don't have an answer rehearsed and ready for them. Three, I seldom think about the color of my skin, my ethnicity, or race. Four, I am not often followed by security in a store and have never heard over the PA, security to aisle three, and then realized I'm the only person in aisle three. Five, if I go to a restaurant in a hotel, most of the items on the menu will be familiar to me. Six, most of the pictures of Jesus I've seen in church look like he could be a relative of mine. Seven, I don't need to look for the special ethnic section of a supermarket to find the food I want. Eight, most of the faces I see on television are the same color, same race as mine. Nine, when I listen to an oldies radio station, I'm likely to know many of the songs. Number 10, in worship, we usually sing songs I know, some that I grew up with in a language I regularly speak and easily understand. 11, if I get stopped by the police, I almost never wonder if it was because of my race. 12, even if I do not have a lot to say, I usually leave a church meeting feeling that I have been understood and perhaps contributed something rather than feeling misunderstood or unheard. 13. The language we use most often in church is the same language I pray in. 14. My church is just called a church, not an ethnic church or a migrant church or an intercultural church or an indigenous or aboriginal ministry. I have at least one credit card. 16. When I meet someone, I am seldom asked to repeat my name or spell it. 17. I can read out loud in church or speak in a meeting and not worry if people will understand me because of my accent. 18. If no one sits beside me on the bus, I never wonder if it is because of the color of my skin. Number 19. I am almost never called by a racial slur or told to go back home or go back to the reserve. 20. I can say something critical about the government without being afraid that I will be judged ungrateful. 21. I think of myself as an individual and feel a bit uncomfortable if someone tries to hold me responsible for things my ancestors did long before I was even born. 22. I have never been asked to bring some of my or our special cultural food for a church event. 23. I usually know what to do in church, and I'm not afraid someone will judge me or my race, my culture, or my community if I make a mistake. 24. I have not been asked to speak as a representative of my race or culture, either in church or anywhere else. 25. Actually, I haven't thought a lot about privilege, not about whether I have it or don't have it. It's not a bad thing to have privilege. No need to feel guilty about it. And it's not a good thing to have privilege. No need to feel smug or get all cocky about it. You didn't do anything to deserve it anyway. But if you've got it, what are you going to do with it? How can you use it to benefit others? How can you make sure you don't recast your privilege into entitlement? Privilege isn't toxic. Entitlement is. Privilege can be used to better a community, help it achieve a common goal, Entitlement can't. Once again, it's a matter of recognition, recognizing that you do, in fact, have privilege, no denying it or minimizing it, and recognition, seeing it as a resource that can be used for the common good and not for personal gain. Those who lack privilege can benefit from having trustworthy, humble allies who have it and can lend it to build the kind of community they want, 
achieve the kind of change you both want. This was the second in our Considering series. Next week, we'll follow up on this theme of recognition and recognition by looking at changing our minds and the rest of us, too. You can find all the episodes you might have missed, plus downloadable resources at openout.ca. I am grateful to the United Church Foundation, which, through its Magici Scholarship, funded this research, and to the United Church's Intercultural Ministries and Publishing House for their support. Theme music is by Bruce Harding. Bruce Harding.